Welcome to the sixth episode of the Notre Dame International Security Center Students Talk Security podcast series. My name is Patrick O'Mara, and today I will be interviewing Dr. Raymond O'Mara. Dr. Raymond O'Mara is the founder and owner of Point Blank Strategic Analysis, where he provides multidisciplinary analysis and insight at the operational and strategic levels supporting defense and national security concept development for organizations. Dr. O'Mara has extensive experience in the startup and defense aviation sectors, having served as the Director of Strategic Programs for the Humatics Corporation, where he was responsible for developing strategic relationships with key aerospace partners, as well as directing defense-oriented research and development, and also the Director of Air Campaign Strategy at Aurora Flight Sciences, a position that he took following his retirement after 29 years in the United States Air Force. During his Air Force career, he completed several operational and operational test flying assignments, amassing over 2,000 hours in the F-15C aircraft, served on the United States Air Force Headquarters staff, commanded the USAF's Air-to-Air Weapons System Evaluation Program, and served as chair of the Strategy Department at the Air War College. Dr. Romero is a graduate of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, the Air Command Staff College, the School of Advanced Air Power Studies, and the Air War College. He completed his PhD at MIT in technology, policy, and engineering systems. Today, the title of this podcast is Drones, a Revolution in Air Power, and we will be discussing how drones have changed air combat in the Air Force and what the future holds. Okay, so Dr. Romero, how are drones changing the Air Force? Good afternoon, and uh, thank you for, uh, for having me. Um, the biggest impact that, that uh, drones, and I'll call them unmanned aerial systems, because there's actually a difference between um, what we think of as drones, which um, are kind of mindless um, autonomous vehicles versus what the Air Force likes to refer to as unmanned aerial systems, or actually remotely piloted aircraft, um, the, uh, because there's still a pilot that's associated with the aircraft, it's just not in the aircraft itself. So uh, the Air Force prefers to refer to them as a remotely piloted aircraft. But the biggest impact that uh, remotely piloted aircraft have had on the Air Force uh, comes in two ways. Number one is the force structure. Um, we are building more and more of these remotely piloted aircraft than we are building manned aircraft right now. If you look at what the Air Force is procuring at this point, we're procuring the F-35 and in the process of developing the B-21 um, as manned aircraft, as well as the uh, KC-46 tanker. Those are pretty much the only manned aircraft that the Air Force is procuring right now. However, uh, the Air Force is in the process of procuring um, uh, several different types of remotely piloted aircraft. So what you're seeing is a greater percentage of remotely piloted aircraft over um, uh, traditional manned aircraft right now. And the impact that that has had on the force is in the personnel structure. Uh, back before 1978, um, the ratio of rated people, rated officers in the Air Force to non-rated officers in the Air Force was about 50-50. So of all the officers in the Air Force, about half were either pilots or navigators. At this point, that ratio uh, for manned aircraft has gone down 
uh, below 15%. So there are far fewer um, pilots and navigators uh, relative to the overall size of the Air Force um, in the officer corps. That has to do with the expanding nature of the mission of the Air Force. We now have um, cyber forces that we, uh, we have in the Air Force. We have space officers that we have in the Air Force. So the Air Force's mission has expanded significantly and uh, the relative number of pilots and navigators has decreased. Um, now within that, those, those uh, the, the manned aircraft pilots now, um, we have a new, um, uh, a new category of pilot, and that's the remotely piloted aircraft uh, pilot. And those folks go through a different, uh, um, a different training regimen than manned aircraft uh, pilot do, pilots do, because the skill sets, while similar for flying manned aircraft and remotely piloted aircraft, uh, while they are similar, they are in fact very different as well. And so we don't need to send remotely piloted aircraft pilots through manned aircraft training because it takes longer, costs more, and they don't necessarily learn the skills that they need to. So this change in force structure that changed, led to a change in personnel structure has also led to a lot of other organizational changes that require um, training apparatus, or, you know, new training sites, new training regimens, and things like that. That just addresses the, uh, the pilot part of it. There are also folks that operate the sensors for remotely piloted aircraft, and that is a new uh, specialty as well. So the Air Force has had to stand up training that is specific for the people who operate the sensors on these RPAs. Um, and even that is incomplete because that's just focusing kind of on the aircraft itself. When you look at what the aircraft does, uh, and remotely piloted aircraft right now are principally involved in the intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance mission, the ISR mission. Um, there has been a big structure that's had to be developed that handles the PED, the processing, exploitation, and dissemination of all of the data that these remotely piloted aircraft are collecting. So we have analysts that are looking at films, that are analyzing what's going on within those things and trying to determine what it is we need to do based on what we're seeing. And that is a very big infrastructure that, that has had to be built uh, for the Air Force. So while remotely piloted aircraft look like aircraft without people in them, and you might think that, well, that's gonna decrease the number of people that are necessary for accomplishing missions. In actual fact, there has been a great addition of people because of the capabilities that some of these RPAs bring the field that we've had to bring in new people and train them in different areas than we did before. So really to sum it up, it's kind of you know, three, three things. The force structure, which led to a personnel structure change, which then led to some organizational trains, changes for training and things like that. So that's very interesting. And I guess that would, that would bring up like the next question I think I would ask where how are drones starting to change how we approach air combat? Um, not necessarily just air combat in the Air Force, but um, I know drones are also used to help guys on the ground as well. So but do you think that um, the future of kind of combat drones um, during like in the, the war theater, uh, would, does that make, would that make combat safer for us? Or... Um, uh, so I guess the, the main question would be like, how, how are we changing the way air combat is dealt with 
uh, these days with how drones are being developed? Okay, um, that's a good question. Um, I would say that uh, drones themselves structurally are not really changing air combat. Um, when it comes to the air-to-air -air mission, um, because right now we don't have drones that are doing air-to-air -air mission, which you kind of traditionally think of as fighters versus fighters uh, or fighters shooting down other aircraft. Right now, uh, remotely piloted aircraft do not have the capability to do that. And there are a number of reasons for it. Um, most of them have to do with not having the appropriate types of sensors on board to enable them uh, to do the mission. And then the other thing is that um, uh, remotely piloted aircraft are highly dependent on data links and communications in order to be able to be operated. And um, right now, there is a, there's too much latency in the communication system uh, for remotely piloted aircraft to be able to react in an appropriate time manner to be successful in the air-to-air -air combat mission. Air-to-air -air combat is very dynamic um, because it's two airplane, air, you know, in the simplest case, it's two aircraft maneuvering in relation to each other. Um, and uh, there, uh, there is a sense, uh, perceive, and then act cycle that has to happen. Well, it's that sensing piece that, um, that is taking too long right now because of the data link. If, if somebody's operating the uh, RPA from, uh, uh, from, the United, from a site in the United States and operating halfway around the world, it takes a long time, relatively, for the signal to travel back and forth uh, between the operator and the RPA. So if you think about it, in an air-to-air -air engagement, the enemy is gonna move, the RPA is gonna have to sense that movement, see what it is, translate that or transfer that back to the operator back in the United States. The operator is going to have to see it, what it is, decide what to do, and then send a command back to the RPA. That delay right there is, is too long for them to be effective in air-to-air -air combat right now. Now, that's just the state that we have right now. Um, we are working on, the Air Force and the, lots of folks are working on faster communications to be able to enable more reactive type of uh, uh, maneuvering. Um, and as we move along, some of the reaction calculation will be moved onto the aircraft itself as we get better at these things. But right now, it's just not appropriate. Um, as far as the, uh, the rest of air combat goes, um, you know, RPAs are principally involved in the ISR mission. And um, because of the fact that they RPAs are not limited by human endurance in the aircraft, they're able to stay airborne for much longer. Um, that opens up a great deal of opportunity when it comes to uh, reconnaissance and surveillance because we can effectively park an aircraft over a site and just keep our eyes on them for an extended period of time. Um, and I mean, hours at a time. And that is really a, a um, a, a great resource for the folks who are doing the analysis and figuring out what our adversaries are doing and then translating that into what we need to do in order to counter our adversaries. So what they've done is kind of change the nature of how we're doing ISR by expanding what we've got there. Now, the fact that we have loaded um, uh, weapons onto uh, some of our United States uh, Air Force, oh, actually the United States Forces and Marines and the, uh, the Navy and the Army have these as well. Um, the fact that we put weapons on these also has changed things a little bit because now 
we can park aircraft in the sky for an extended period of time. And when something happens, they're there to be able to, uh, to react and attack if necessary. Um, in the past, if a manned aircraft had about an hour and a half of duration over the target, if nothing happened in that hour and a half, it happened after that, then we didn't have an aircraft on there, we missed an opportunity. What RPAs have done is extend the, uh, the window of opportunity for us. So that's actually changed the way that the Air Force has been able to do, uh, um, uh, do operations. And um, it's made uh, aircraft, I think, more effective in both the ISR mission and uh, possibly supporting some of the, uh, the, uh, the missions that go on on the ground that, they're, that they are supporting. So I think that's made a couple interesting points, how um, you were discussing like, the air-to-air -air aspect of uh, the fighters and having actual pilots overseas fighting is a very large difference than you know, having um, a man essentially you know, sitting in a room uh, back stateside trying to fight with less training. Um, he's not there in the moment, so I feel like his reaction time would probably be um, uh, changed or be uh, slowed not only from the the signal, but also because he probably didn't go through the, the training that uh, obviously the um, man pilots would go through. Um, That's so true, but if, if we get to the point where that delay is um, is eliminated and we can do it, then we'll just change the way that we're training pilots so that they do get that type of training. But you're right, right now, uh, the operator in the United States just does not have enough information for the time to be able to react in order to be able to be effective in an air to air combat role. Okay, very interesting. So would you say that um, the use of drones now, uh, would you say that they are making combat safer in a way? Because I know you kind of touched on how uh, drones are able to you know, circle over target areas for a longer period of time and provide reconnaissance. So would you say that um, you know, information related to, say, troops on the ground, uh, would that make it better as we can, we can always have eyes on for a longer period of time? Would that help uh, be able to you know, make missions go smoother um, or whatnot? Certainly. In that case that you just described, I think, yes. Um, when uh, we've, we've got a great deal of integration uh, between the, our forces in the air and our forces on the ground. And obviously aircraft with the right kind of sensors can provide a great deal of information um, and uh, sensing for ground troops who, whose either line of sight or sensor line of sight is limited. Um, and yes, by, by having the, uh, the particular types of aircraft that we have right now, if you look at the Predator, which was just uh, retired, uh, and the, the Reaper, which uh, we have the most uh, of, uh, they're not fast aircraft. And so they're actually able to stay, and, and troops on the ground don't move fast. So we're actually able to marry up our airborne aircraft, you know, the air aircraft themselves with the troops on the ground in a, in a more uh, constructive way now. Um, so yes, the information that these aircraft can provide ground troops, I think definitely is making them more effective. Um, and, you know, if they can see somebody coming uh, and have early warning, be prepared for a type of attack or to be able to react to it, that's obviously very good. Um, now, on the, on the other side of that, um, having these sensors also 
has the potential to make ground forces um, a little more, um, uh, a little less conservative perhaps in what they've got. So they may actually be uh, more willing to perform some actions than they were before, which could be more dangerous. However, I think overall, it's safe to say that, uh, that RPAs have made you know, the type of ground combat that we're doing right now more effective. And I think a part of that effectiveness is being more safe for uh, you know, our soldiers uh, that are on the ground. Now, um, it's certainly more safe for the people operating the aircraft because we don't have a human in the aircraft that's in the combat zone. Uh, but that comes at a cost, and it kind of comes at what we discussed a little bit before, is that um, RPAs are not necessarily as effective as manned aircraft in all missions that they're doing. Um, RPAs are very effective in missions that are not highly dynamic, certainly more dynamic, and we're getting better, and they're getting more reactive in their integration with ground troops, but in um, in missions where things are changing very rapidly and having the ability to make the decision at the forward edge of the fight um, is advantageous over having uh, that those decisions being made uh, farther away from the fight. So it's not, if, if we get into a situation like that, that the RPA is not designed or suited for, then it's not making it safer uh, because the asset is not providing the type of assistance that the, that the troops on the ground need. Uh, but for what they're designed to do, they definitely are beneficial to troops on the ground. Yes, yes. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. That's very interesting how that um, just shows how, how important manned aircraft are right now. And like for the relatively, not necessarily, I wouldn't say distant future, but the, you know, the future to come, definitely, uh, I don't think we'll be seeing a, getting rid of them anytime soon. It just kind of shows that they're, they're they have too much of an important role right now in what we right. do. There's, um, there's still uh, a lot of work that needs to be done, not only in the communication uh, arena, but in the, um, I'll call it the intelligence arena in the aircraft itself. Cause right now, um, you know, remotely piloted aircraft are very good at doing things that they are told to do. And there are many things that we can program to do them to do, and they just take care of and they do automatically. It's when you get into a situation where things are changing that the human comes in and starts looking at stuff. Machines are very good at performing instructions that they've been given. And we're getting better and better at giving them the ability to make decisions about those instructions as time goes on. As time goes on. But humans are very good at um, handling ambiguity. So when things are not necessarily going as they were planned to go or anticipated to go, humans are very good at sorting things out and making decisions about what needs to be done. Machines may be able to do them more precisely once they know what they're supposed to do, but humans are more effective right now at figuring out what needs to be done. And combat itself, whether it's air-to-air -air combat, air-to-ground combat, or even ground-to-ground -ground combat, is a highly dynamic, always changing type of environment where decisions have to be made all the time, very quickly, and quite frequently, lives are at stake based on what those decisions are. And so, um, until we get to the point 
where we're able to shift you know, the, the burden of that type of reasoning into an aircraft that does not have a human in it, we're going to need that human out there up front to be able to handle those types of ambiguities because nothing ever goes the way that it's planned to go. And um, Dwight Eisenhower famously said, you know, no plan survives first contact with the enemy because the enemy gets a vote in what happens. We can plan all we want for what we want to happen, but if the enemy decides not to react the way that we want them to act, then we wind up in a situation where um, you know, a decision has to be made. And that, that decision right now needs to be made by humans. Now, there's, again, there's a lot of work that's being done on developing artificial intelligence and giving machines that ability to, to uh, think and decide, but we're not there right now. So manned aircraft are going to be part of the force for, a, I believe, quite a while. So would you say that, um, I, think, I think one of my greatest concerns about the, the development of drones would be the fact that, you know, you were talking about how this whole artificial intelligence uh, is being developed now, but it's not where it needs to be. And right now we need humans over there because they have the human instinct to react to, like you were talking about, the dynamic situations of battle. So what, would, what do you think some of your greatest concerns um, are regarding the, the future development of drones and, and how they're going to come about? Well, I think it goes right along the lines with, uh, with what you just said. My greatest concern is that we um, prematurely move away from some of the capabilities we have now where we have humans in the aircraft and go too rapidly towards remotely piloted aircraft to try and get that human out of the danger of, of flying the aircraft in a combat zone. Because um, I think the greatest mistake that we can make is by moving systems in that are not yet ready and not as capable as they need to be and removing systems that are capable of doing that. Um, so there's, I, I'm not concerned with the fact that we are going to increase the role of remotely piloted aircraft as time goes on, as we increase their capabilities. That makes sense. And that is perfectly in line with the way that we have developed aircraft since we started flying them in combat. There's nothing really different uh, about that. Um, the concern is jumping too far ahead before we've figured out what we need to do, because ultimately, um, this is a, uh, this is a very dangerous business. And when we decide to use force, it means that lives are at risk and, um, we have to be very careful about how we, uh, how we employ force and we don't want to take unnecessary risk by jumping too far ahead in implementing something that's not ready. That's really my greatest concern. I think I would agree with that. I think, like you said, humans definitely have a tendency to get ahead of themselves with technology and you know, jumping too far forward, definitely, um, especially when you're not ready, really wouldn't have the greatest outcome. So I think uh, a nice kind of a concluding question to ask you um, relating to the title, um, so are drones actually a revolution in air power? Like how are, what are they doing that will paint the future of air power and how, you know, how will it revolutionize what we're doing right now? Um, it's my opinion that, that 
that remotely piloted aircraft are in fact not a revolution in air power. Um, the first unpiloted aircraft uh, that was built was built during World War One. It was called the Kettering Bug. Um, it's more akin to a cruise missile um, than to a uh, than to a Reaper, but we have been pursuing technology that has been oriented towards helping humans perform flight and perform combat with aircraft since we started building airplanes. During World War II, we had remotely piloted airplanes. Uh, there was a program where we took um, battle-worn B-17s and B-24s and we loaded them with explosives and flew them remotely uh, via radio control and tried to use them to uh, uh, to act as basically guided uh, guided bombs. It's called Project Aphrodite. It wasn't very successful. They had a, a number of, uh, of accidents. In fact, um, uh, President John Kennedy's older brother Joe was uh, was killed in one of these uh, um, one of these aircraft uh, during World War II. Um, but if you look at the development of air power technology over time, you can see a constant uh, string of the adoption of automation into aircraft. Right now, our manned aircraft are actually highly automated. Radars are highly automated. Lots of avionics systems are, are very automated. We have defensive systems that are automated. So what we've done is, as we've gotten better at things, we have handed off to machines things that they can be very good at and that they can do better than humans so that we free humans up to be able to do what they can do better. So for example, with a defensive, say an electronic defensive system that's out there sensing signals and it knows how to jam those signals. We're able to shift that task off to a machine because it can do that more accurately and faster than a human can do. And now that the human doesn't have to worry about that, human can worry about the ambiguities and the bigger picture about how we're employing uh, these things, uh, how we're employing the aircraft in pursuit of accomplishing the objectives of a given mission. So, um, Again, I don't particularly think that is a revolution that we're going through. Is air combat changing because of the amount of automation that we're, we're, uh, that we're shifting off? Yes, but that change, again, is consonant with the change that's been going on for over a century. That's very interesting. Your, your insight and experience really is gonna provide everyone, I think, with a, a great, um, I would say, kind of a picture, a, a, a way to expect kind of the future in a, in a very interesting way, you know, especially as you know, technology advances further and further. Um, and, you know, even you know, looking at the F-35 and the developments now, um, you know, people still expect drones to make a big impact. And I think what, what you're talking and discussing, uh, what, we've, what we've discussed here really um, kind of shows how reliant uh, we still are on, you know, men in that um, the, even though we, humans, humans. Um, uh, and uh, even though we were seeing lots of, you know, robot technology advancing further and further that, you know, we're, we're a lot further away from, you know, robots taking over, like, uh, like people say, than we think we are, but yeah, no, I, I really want to be the case. Uh, but yeah, I 
I really appreciate uh, your time and being an interview and uh, definitely learned a lot and provided great insight into, into this world. That's my pleasure. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.